0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee, delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food writer Yasmin Khan. In today's episode, we'll talk to Yasmin about migration food stories, her new book, Ripe Figs and we'll hear Yasmin's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Before Julia settled into her famous kitchen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, her life was full of international travel and adventure. Her early married life to Paul Child was nomadic. There was little hardship involved, food was not scarce, and there security was assured. However, Julia was far away from home and her family. She was lucky enough to first land in France, where even in the wake of World War II, food was plentiful, and appreciation for it deeply embedded in French culture. For the rest of her life, these experiences and memories stuck with Julia. Writing to her dear friend and mastering the art of French cooking facilitator, Avis Devoto, Julia said, How I love to come back to this sweet and natural France, this warmth, these wonderful smells, this graciousness and coziness, and freedom of spirit. Someone who also deeply appreciates what travel, moving to other lands, and the connections we have to food from back home and what we discover in new homelands is Yasmin Khan. Yasmin is a food and travel writer, broadcaster, and human rights campaigner. Her work centers on the intersection of food, travel, and politics, notably challenging stereotypes about the Middle East through celebrating the region's beauty in contrast to its conflicts. She's appeared in prominent shows such as BBC's Newsnight and written for leading publications like The Guardian, Savour, and Roads and Kingdom. Yasmin trained in law and ran international campaigns on poverty and human rights before transitioning to writing. She's the author of multi-award-winning cookbooks, The Saffron Tales, about Persian food, and Zaytoun about Palestinian cooking. Yasmin joins us today to tell us what has drawn her to Eastern Mediterranean food, stories of displaced people, as well as about her newest cookbook, Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece and Cyprus. Welcome to the podcast, Yasmin.
2: Hi, Todd. How you doing?
1: Well, how are you?
2: Yeah, I'm good. Um, my book came out in the U.S. last week, so... Yeah, I'm um, just doing what all writers enjoy, which is, you know, after years of working on a book, you finally get to speak to people about it. Um, although I am sad that we can't do this in Roberta's, uh, you know, um, love being in that studio. That's where a lot of the Heritage Radio stuff gets recorded, right? That's where I've been before.
1: Pre-pandemic, absolutely, yeah.
2: I know, in the Although our times. show was
1: remote, so I'm kind of, kind of used to that, but it is more fun to be present with the guests. But we we adapt. So yeah. tell us how how did you get so specifically interested in the food and culture of the Eastern Mediterranean?
2: Well, um, many, many things I think brought me to to write this book, Ripe Figs. Um so my background is that I'm of mixed heritage. I'm half Iranian and half Turkish. And, you know, um my previous books have very much focused on Middle Eastern food. Um, But I've always had a deep love of of Turkish cuisine as well, which is just, of course, you know, uh, hop, skip and a jump along (laughs) um, uh, away Mm -hmm. in terms of that region. And um, the area of London that I live in and I've lived in for about 12 years is uh, called Hackney. And it's an area where uh, historically there's been over the last kind of 60 years, um a lot of cypriot greek and turkish migration so you know the streets where i live are lined with baklava stores or you know um turkish you know grill restaurants you know my local greengrocer is filled with you know crates of halloumi or marinated olives you know or bottles of pomegranate molasses and tahini Uh, So, you know, my neighborhood is intrinsically eastern Mediterranean. And, you know, in recent years, just I've really wanted to delve deep into celebrating that. Um, So that's maybe the basis. But then on top of that, um, in recent years, as increasingly kind of I, I kind of watched the news reports coming out of the region, which has seen the biggest movement of people into Europe since the Second World War. About five million people um, have have moved into that area, mainly remnants of you know the Syrian civil war, the wars on Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I became increasingly uh, moved, I think, by the stories of these refugees and migrants, and um, curious as to you know, how this was changing a region, both in a practical, you know, sense, but also in a culinary sense. Um, And so I guess those two things inspired me on my trips. You know, I I love using food as a way of delving into broader social and political issues. And in my mind, there's probably no issue that's had kind of more political attention put on it than, than, you know, borders and migration in recent years.
1: I think it would be helpful because I too live in North London, just northwest of you, where the same, I've, I've been marveling at the same influence of, of Turkish and Cypriot and sometimes Greek, although usually people are Cypriot and either Turkish or, or Greek mm. uh, Cypriots. And it, certainly to to someone who isn't, the food has similarities or a lot of common dishes, but I would think to anyone who is Turkish or Greek or or Cypriot and, and Cypriot Turkish or C- Cypriot Greek, they see them more distinctly. And I also thought it would be helpful if you could kind of give everyone the briefest history lesson of basically <laughs> why, what are distinct cultures and countries have this sharing of similar dishes.
2: Sure. Well, um, the the history of... Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus, and that whole Eastern Mediterranean region, um, you know, is a is, its history is one of borders being as fluid as they have been contested over several thousand millennia. Many of the the big great empires um, of our civilization have, have have you know run through that that region. You know, from the ancient Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, the Venetians, the Ottomans, who probably had like the biggest culinary influence. The Ottoman Empire had had a particular emphasis on on its kitchens and and incredible, you know, culinary arts that came out of that. Um and as a result of of, of these kind of melding of, of borders, um, and of course the geography of the region just being very similar, you know, that beautiful Mediterranean climate with Fertile red soils and you know, perfectly fit for olive trees and, you know, vineyards and things. Um, so that is kind of historically why there are more there are many similarities. And whilst, you know, there are many books that could be written about the specifics of each cuisine, what I wanted to do, which also fits in with my narrative of what I'm trying to explore in the book, I wanted to really zoom out and try and find similarities where perhaps some would like to only focus on differences and I think there are many similarities uh, in the food of of that region whether it's a particular love of grilling um, barbecued meat over hot coals uh, or the abundant use of olive oil which is used as a seasoning as well as a, a cooking ingredient. Or the exceptional dairy produce that exists, you know, the, the famous Greek yogurts and, and, and feta cheese, which have their equivalents in, in Turkey and Cyprus and are used liberally every day in in, 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 in as a side um, or in cooking. And a really rich array of vegetable-focused dishes, often served at room temperature. And a style of eating which we're all familiar with, you know, meze, that beautiful selection of small plates served over several hours alongside often copious bottles of red wine and perhaps an anise flavoured liquor like raki or ouzo. So there are many similarities, I feel, if if you choose to look for them. And I think that that is applicable not just to food in the eastern Mediterranean, but humans all over the world in general.
1: Well, I'm struck that by you're talking about a lot of things that are either native to or flourish in that geography, and of course, that kind of nature doesn't recognize artificial political mm. borders. So, I think that that's very, you know, telling. And you talk about in, in, in ripe figs about the the political divide and how Cyprus as an island has been politically divided down the middle, but culturally, it it's it's harder to divide, right?
2: Absolutely. So for those who don't know, uh, Cyprus is a beautiful Mediterranean island in the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> and it's, um, it's just, it's south of Turkey, north of Egypt, to the west of um, Syria, Lebanon and Israel. And uh, it used to be a British colony. And uh, like many former British colonies, sadly, after the British left, kind of stoked up a little bit by the divide and rule tactics that the British tended to employ in in a lot of places. And the island ended up in a civil war. And since 1974 has been divided, Um, Turkish Cypriot in the north and Greek Cypriot in the south. And there is a UN partition wall in the middle, you know, patrolled by UN soldiers and, and a green line, a kind of no man's land buffer zone as well. And that all sounds very, you know, stark and serious, and and of course, in many ways, it really is. Um, but uh, what I wanted to do when I was there, and it's very easy to cross the border, and and what I try and do in my work is I cook with people in their home kitchens, and I try, you know, during our time together uh, at the kitchen table to explore kind of some of the issues that, um, yeah, that 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 that, that, are, that are relevant in a place and. For me, kind of time and time again, you know, whether I was cooking beautiful, you know, stuffed grape leaves filled with, uh, you know, a a tomato and rice um, filling or I was eating gorgeous kind of tahini, sweet tahini buns um, that are a beautiful breakfast delicacy, you know, throughout the island or if I was eating some uh, halloumi, the island's kind of most famous culinary <laughs> export, uh, which I don't know the, the the Cypriots just have so many wonderful ways for using it alongside mint. You know, such so you know whether that's like halloumi and mint filled ravioli or you know halloumi and mint filled dumplings. Um, but yeah, so you know I kept over and over again as I was crossing this border, seeing similarities at the kitchen table where political leaders again who I think would too often like us to see difference and it was really again fascinating for me to hear over and over again from the Cypriots I cooked with that you know they many of them just wanted to identify as Cypriot as opposed to Greek Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot and food I think was one of the ways in which the island could hold on to a collective identity
1: and you also spent time in, in some of the Greek islands that have been front and center and, and most impacted by this um migration story or forced migration in many ways of the Eastern Mediterranean, which has had a profound effect on, on, on European politics as well. But I was curious, w- w- in what you were just talking about, is that what kind of motivated you to tell the refugee stories to, to break down the barriers of other or interlopers and look more at people who actually aren't as different as these political borders are imposing?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you, you really kind of hit the nail on the head there. You know, we you know coming from the UK, you know, with Brexit and, and the fallout from that, so much of the debate around Brexit was around this fear of migrants. And it was shortly after, you know, we were seeing these people fleeing the Syrian civil war and, and a lot of xenophobia and, and racism was whipped up around that. And at the same time, you know, the last few years, well, you know, I think that the the four years of the Trump administration also really focused on borders quite a lot, whether it was what was going on on the Mexican border or whether it was, um, is- you know, things like the Muslim ban. And uh, as someone who, you know, I- I'm British, you know, I was born in London, but as, as someone who's a second generation immigrant, I, you know, the- these stories weren't just abstract when I would read them on the news. They were they were very personal because, you know, my parents were economic migrants to the UK um but mm-hmm. but other family members have been political refugees, you know you know iran is has been a very fraught place over the last forty years, and mm. you know I've had members of my family who've paid people smugglers to take them over the hills of Turkey or other ones who've been able to kind of claim political asylum here in the u k and and had they not been able to, they would have felt i mean you know the who knows what they would have faced, but it certainly probably would have involved prison and potentially you know even even worse um yeah actions. So, yeah, it felt very personal to me and I really wanted to see if I could through through a book, through through food stories, try and change the narrative and perhaps build some empathy uh, amongst people who perhaps, you know, don't know why people move, aren't quite so aware of the refugee and migrant story. And um you know some people might say well you know I mean a cookbook though I mean what's a cookbook going to do but I actually think you know I was I was a human rights campaigner for for almost a decade well I guess I still am but you know professionally I've worked for nonprofits for about a decade and what I really realized during that time was that you know if you want to change a bit of legislation or if you want to raise awareness about something an issue the first thing you have to do is build empathy between the subject matter you're talking about and, you know, someone sitting in a, an apartment in LA. And food is such a great connector in that respect. Um, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But, you know, breaking bread is one of the oldest forms of, of human connection for a reason. And that, that that's kind of my aim with this book, really. You know, a celebration of incredible recipes, um an a description of how the eastern mediterranean is changing with these new waves of migrants from afghanistan and yemen and iraq and iran but also um a book that can yeah through the food stories hopefully build empathy
1: well i think you've really achieved that before we talk more specifically in the second half about you know what's in the book and and some of the delightful Um, stories and food stories you tell, I wanted to ask you up front, and we've talked about this quite a a bit already, about, you know, borders and migration. I think they've been a hot topic for a long time but they've been particularly charged in recent years between brexit between um, the election in the us the presidential election in the US and between um, crises has sort of died down but were very volatile in the last few years in the eastern Mediterranean particularly with people dying trying to make these crossings the, the reality is this kind of, fluidity is here to stay but i was curious and people have been pushing back right about keeping the world from being interconnected but my personal view is that is a losing battle the world is Mm. interconnected and will grow more interconnected but i was curious from from your view having delved into all of these connections how do you see this influencing what we eat into the future
2: i think it's a really good question and um i there's so many parts to it, so i'm gonna gonna start with um maybe zooming out and then go into kind of how I think it will change our 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 eating habits and practices um you know one of the things that became really clear to me when I was researching the book was that there isn't actually a migrant or refugee crisis. Um, even though I think I probably definitely put that in my book proposal, you know, for this book, because what I've come <laughs> to understand is that throughout the whole of human history, we have moved as a species for our survival. It's just an intrinsic pattern of what it means to be human to travel and to move. I mean, you know, that's how the US was founded, right? It was through movement. Yeah. Um. That's how. Um. Yeah. A lot. A lot of people kind of have have a lot of yeah. That, Ugh, I'm that bit can be edited out. Anyway,
1: no, um, I, I take what you're. No, I think that's yeah. a great point. You're saying that. Bas- yeah. You're you're pointing out how recent these rigid constructs yes. of borders and passports and all of this. I mean, I go back to my wife's grandfather who was born in 1893. And to this day, he, lit, he was born in the Pale of Russia, which is now Ukraine, but it was then not Ukraine. And he lived in Canada. He lived in the U.S. He lived in England. He lived in France. I'm always like, what passport did he have? And the whole family has yes. no idea because it was so much easier to just do that before. And I think people have forgotten, particularly if you've only been born under passport regimes, how new a yes. phenomenon this is.
2: Absolutely right, Todd. I mean, you are—that is exactly, you know, the point that I, I'm trying to make. You know, nation states are relatively new constructs, and it's important to see them as a construct. You know, it involves a bit of like, you know, getting your head around the fact that we've we've created something, but it isn't necessarily a natural order of things. And we, if we've created it, we can also move it um before that people used to move there were empires i mean in the uk the very first alien act which is about kind of um you know migrants only came in around kind of 80 years ago uh so this is a really relatively recent phenomenon um so adding on to that the fact that the world the world bank predicts that in the next you know couple of decades due to climate change we're going to see huge numbers of people moving they predict that by 2050, we're going to have 150 million people who will be forcibly displaced by climate change. And this is a very live issue for us all, therefore, to be thinking about, you know, how in the 21st century can we update our concepts of borders and migration to enable people to live and move and work in, in peace and dignity? And, you know, building more fences or building more walls isn't actually going to be able to get us away from, from what the climate crisis is going to, you know, end up um, bringing into um, our world. So I just feel like these issues are so important and, and are going to become even more important. And of course, how is it going to affect how we eat? Well, you know, I think all over the world we can see in every, you know, neighbourhood. I might be in a particularly eastern Mediterranean neighbourhood now. But, you know, one of the great benefits of migration is the wonderful um, influence uh, in within kind of the culinary lem- realm that come when people move. Be that techniques, be that ingredients, be that stores opening up that specialise in particular products. Um, and I think, again, that fluidity has always existed. And, you know, I for one certainly think it's something to be celebrated. Uh, you know, I think the kitchen table and our kitchen store cupboards are probably the place where we, we enjoy the benefits of migration the most.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I see that for the people affected by that climate change, it will be the kind of um, suffering and hardship that people forcibly or feeling forced to migrate in the Eastern Mediterranean have felt, but then the net benefit of those that's often under-recognized by the people that they're joining is this diversity of experience that actually augments life. And I'm struck by that we need to go to break, that – you know, you talked about halloumi cheese because it's sort of like halloumi <laughs> cheese is a, a vegan or vegetarian lunch dish is a London staple. It's yeah. is is London yeah. as anything else, isn't it nowadays? Almost as British as anything
2: else. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, All right. and yeah, so, you know, food, I think, is a bit like a language, you know, it's constantly evolving it is always representative, kind of the era that it, it, that it exists in. And yeah, I love that about it, actually, that, you know, it's constantly changing. And that's a result of, you know, external factors such as migration.
1: All right, we're going to be right back to talk more with Yasmin Khan and more specifically about her cookbook, Ripe Figs. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee. With over 100 years of coffee cultivation heritage and the family behind this company, Ludwig Coffee has been delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. Their network of small co-op and family-owned farms grants Ludwig Coffee the opportunity to select exceptionally unique green coffee, ready to roast in small batches in Brooklyn, New York. Splurging on the main ingredient is important, Shop for Ludwig Coffee at lifcmarketplace.com. Welcome back. We're talking to food writer Yasmin Khan about her new book, Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece and Cyprus. So Yasmin, we've talked a lot about migration and borders and the geopolitical landscape and not as much about the, the most fun part like what you actually ate and what you've actually put in the book. And the book is is a really wonderful combination of, of travelogue and, you know, stories about migration that we've talked about. But it, of course, is full of wonderful recipes and uh, mouthwatering dishes. And I thought maybe you could pick a couple out that for you are— not just, you know, dishes that you enjoy, but also kind of exemplify the journey that you went on to create the book, but also the journey you're trying to um, bring your readers along with you.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard to choose because (laughs) it was a very delicious journey. Um, But what I've tried to do in the book is include recipes that I think really clearly reflect the specific um, and distinctive um, culinary traditions of Greece and Turkey and Cyprus alongside kind of more modern interpretations of um, classic dishes and in addition kind of recipes that reflect the new wave of migration that are in there. So I'll just talk you through perhaps a few of them. Um, When I was in Istanbul, which in my view is one of the world's best foodie cities. You know, it's you're mm-hmm. just hard pressed to have a have a bad meal there. You know, um mm-hmm. I wanted to include, you know, because I'm a travel writer and this book is full of travel essays, I wanted to include recipes that would really transport you there. And for me, one of my favourite recipes in the book is something so simple. It's a grilled mackerel san- sandwich which is served with a really punchy um, salad dressed with those classic Turkish ingredients of pomegranate molasses, pulver bear pepper flakes, which you may also know as Aleppo pepper, that kind of sweet, fruity, very mild chili flake, and sumac, Mm -hmm. that gorgeous astringent tart berry Mm -hmm. that's ground into a powder. Now, you know, in Istanbul, if you're walking along, you know, the Bosporus Strait, which is that beautiful bit of water that runs through the city... You know, there are fish stands lining the streets with men, grilling mackerel and, and making these sandwiches. And yeah, the, the dish just transports you back there. And some of my other favourites in Istanbul were a hot yoghurt soup, which is really common in Turkic cuisines, um you know, where yoghurt is cooked with like some chicken broth and then flavoured with um, and then it's got like some small bits of rice that are simmered in there to thicken it and then flavored with lots of mint dried mint and um kind of topped with a chili butter again that those pulver bed chili flakes are everywhere and that was a recipe that i was I was taught how to make by um a woman of Kurdish Turkish origin and we had this wonderful conversation about borders and identity and then we' are just nourished by this gorgeous soup. Um, a few other recipes, you know, from the Greek recipes in the book are some of the real classics that, you know, we all love, whether it's, you know, a beautiful lamb cleftico, those, those slow-cooked oven-baked um, lamb with lots of oregano and thyme, um, some things like uh, which is that punchy uh, cod's roe, well, it can be any kind of fish roe, really, but I make mine with cod's roe um, dip, uh, it was so much better than the pink stuff you get in tubs in 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 supermarkets when you make it from home it's just so exceptional
1: <laughs> it doesn't end up pink by accident
2: no exactly um although you can you can make it pink with a bit of um beetroot juice, but that's that's
1: a separate story do you, wait I have to ask you do you know where did this idea that it should be pink come from?
2: Do you know what I don't know that's such a good question isn't it um because it just because isn't when natural, you, travel... you know, fish yeah, right. to that colour. It...
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's because fish eggs, like salmon eggs or something, do have that reddish colour. So they were like kind of trying to match the idea of its origin, even though it doesn't end up.
2: Maybe, you know, when you get it in the region or if you make my recipe, it's just like a beautiful pale you know, just a pale kind of cream, creamy colored dip. So I have no idea. Yeah, that
1: naturally it's kind of, yeah, off white, creamy in color. Yeah. But, and for the, for, for our listeners who don't know, the other amazing thing, in addition to halloumi cheese, tarama salata, which most Americans only have plentiful, if they live in a neighborhood that had significant Greek immigration, mm. it's, whereas it's in every UK grocery store, high end to yes. low end, right? It's a staple of, British food, which I assume is also a product of significant migration to the UK, it's not native. Yeah, to.
2: absolutely, especially in London. Um, there are real pockets of the Greek community. I just love it. It's one of my earliest food memory memories. Actually, eating eating tiramisulata because it's such a um, unusual flavour. Um, and I remember I was at a, f- a friend. I think my mum. Well, my mum was studying her PhD, and we were visiting her professor, and um, I went along with her, and she gave me some brown bread, toasted brown bread, and. Some some taramaslata topped on it. And I must have been about five. And I just, I absolutely loved it. It's just, oh, I love the, <laughs> yeah. It was so pungent and intense and yeah. Um, But yeah, and then onto the food of Cyprus, which is a wonderful mix of kind of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean flavours. And, you know, they seem to have like a special... <laughs> like skill for putting dried mint into almost everything that they they make <laughs> so you know i've got beautiful recipes for like halloumi and mint muffins um mm. or you know yeah um stuffed you know vine leaves that are kind of um filled with rice that's flecked with dried mint and tomatoes um, so, you know, they're the traditional recipes from the region, but then I've also included some really great recipes such that I like things like Afghan recipes because there were so many Afghani refugees when I was there in lesvos, So there's a b- gorgeous braised um, kind of pumpkin uh, kind of that's cooked with lots of garlic and ginger and topped with another kind of yogurt sauce, which is, you know, an Afghani inspired dish. Well, there's a lovely pomegranate and sumac um, roasted chicken, which is inspired by the flavours of Syria. And um, a meal that I, I kind of ate a few times at a, a restaurant in Mytilene, the capital of the Greek island Lesvos, that was set up by a Syrian doctor who was there as a refugee and had been stuck on the island for a long time and therefore had made a restaurant. So, yeah, it's been lovely actually to be able to bring those other elements into a book because you know just in the same way that if you're writing a book about british food you'd have to reflect the migration into the uk it's the same there so i just wanted to include some syrian and afghani and iranian recipes as well
1: wow that's great and that was also that was just a mouth-watering i (laughs) i i hope everyone's eaten before listening because if that won't make you hungry i don't know what will
2: (laughs) I know, um, I'm actually thinking is, of going out to buy some taramasalata <laughs> after this call, actually.
1: <laughs> I know, and I get mine now from an Israeli deli because it tastes better than what's in it. It's still pink, but it's... Oh, I've fr- um, never
2: had um, an Israeli version. Is it just I don't similar? think it's
1: Israeli. I think it's just, it's an Israeli deli, and they're selling salada because they're in London. But
2: right, they, make, okay. I
1: think they make, make it themselves. And they told me, well, they told me their baker was... And he was something else Middle Eastern, but uh, he may not make the tarama. Um, But anyway, actually, on that note, my next question was related because I think I found such delight living in North London with the fact that I've learned, and particularly around me, which is really more Crouch End, is uh, most of the shopkeepers are Cypriot, and sometimes they're Greek Mm. and sometimes they're Turkish. Actually, more often they're Greek Cypriots, I think. But... And then certainly in London more widely, there's a lot of Turkish people in the green grocer business. And, yeah. you know, my instinct originally coming from the States is, oh, no, you trust a big supermarket and all of that. And who are these random stands? And then you find, well, actually, these random small storefronts have much better produce.
2: Mm. And that
1: comes from this cultural or I've learned, this cultural appreciation for good food that Turkish and Cypriot people have, and Greek, but in our neck of the woods, it's mostly Turks and Cypriots, and they just weren't going to eat the rubbish from Tesco. Um, And so they've built a whole niche kind of business around that in both green grocers, in importing specialty products, um, whether it's good tahini or pomegranate seeds or sumac, and then also in running wonderful restaurants that are based on the often simple food, but really high quality ingredients and and freshness. And so I was curious, you know, especially people come to you know, many people have been to London many times and might want to do something different than you know just go to the shard and go around the london eye and look at westminster so i was curious to get some of your recommendations for people who want to venture out of zone 1 on the tube and where would you send them
2: uh it's it's um a very good question again and you're so right it just i feel so lucky to have this yeah incredible you know, abundance of food stores just on my doorstep where the produce is just so exceptional. Um, and it's interesting, actually, because whenever I have friends come over from the States, you know, they always have their list of restaurants that they want to go to, that they've read about, um, that, you know, the top 20 restaurants in London or whatever. And I always make them come to my neighbourhood and take them to one of the Turkish Ojebakisi restaurants, which are grill restaurants, which um, the area I live in, I mean, there must be like... Like thirty within a one mile radius of my house, or um, possibly mm. more. Actually, that doesn't, you know, um, you know. And uh, I love. I mean, just you can't have a bad meal here. But I particularly love um, Testy. I really like Mangal too. Um, you know, you can find both of those places really easy just by googling them. They're kind of really well known to Londoners. But yeah, I really recommend getting Ma- um, Mangal's. Get- the one
1: that is makes the Eater lists of best places a lot. Oh, really. It?
2: Great. So. Um, yeah. And I just, yeah, really recommend coming up to Dalston, um, kind of walking up the streets towards Stoke Newington. And you will just be in yeah a food lover's paradise. Get yourself some gozleme, you know, pick up some baklava. Um, you know, there are speciality kind of pide stores and lahmacun, which are Turkish pizzas. Um, it's a great place to come for Turkish breakfasts. And if and I do think that perhaps the Turks do the best breakfast in the world. I mean, the Turkish breakfast is this this feast of small plates, you know, of, 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 you know, three or four different kinds of cheeses, you know, sliced cucumbers and tomatoes, some olives, you know, perhaps an egg dish. Well, there's always an egg dish. It could be a menemen, which is like a tomato scramble. It could be eggs, you know, in... in in cooked poached in yogurt with chili butter um there'll be jams such as like carrot jams sour cherry jams there'll be breads um you know it's just a feast i've probably only mentioned like half of the amount of things that you get on there so yeah come over to hackney and dalston it's uh it's it's just i think one of the best foodie areas in the city
1: and and i think you write about in the in the book and the part that i know which is a bit north is is this area it's really a road called green lanes right and it, yes. green lanes actually goes really far from turnpike lane which is um wood green all the way down to where you are in hackney right and so it's it's pretty massive distance that kind of has this just unbelievable offerings of food and, and restaurants and and, and gross. There's some other stuff too, but um, is, is that sort of, would you say just start at the bottom of Green Lanes and work your way up?
2: Yeah, so I live just off Green Lanes right at the beginning of it by Newington Green. And yeah, as you said, Green Lanes is, it's a very historic road, actually, one of the oldest roads in London. And it's also one of the longest. It's 6.3 miles, which is a really long road to go through just one one city. Um, And as you pass through, you get different, um, you know, flavors of of the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, where I am, it's particularly kind of Turkish and kind of as you go a bit further up, it's more kind of Kurdish, even a bit more further up. It's more Cypriot. Um, And yeah, it's a great place to do your shopping.
1: Yeah. And it's I think it's a great Pl- a place to get a version of multicultural london and mm. uh just uh, shepherd's bush on the other side is another one that's like a whole whole other world but um for for those if you've uh maybe people get often as far as islington and like angel yeah. if you just keep keep yeah. going it keeps getting interesting all right <laughs> after the break we're gonna hear yasmin's julia moment Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show and share your ideas for future guests. Migration stories are also part of the American winemaking story. We'll explore how immigrant labor is a vital part of Santa Barbara winemaking at the kickoff of this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. Join us May 21st for El Buena Quipo. It takes a village to make great Santa Barbara wine. This virtual event will be hosted by Matt Ketman, an editor at Wine Enthusiast and the Santa Barbara Independent. It's free, and you can watch it from wherever you'll be on May 21st. Go to sbce.events to register. We'll be right back.
0: When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage
1: of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the
0: kitchen, who is going to see?
1: From mm-hmm. Julia's immortal mm-hmm. words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. Yasmin, what's your Julia moment?
2: Well, it's hard, isn't it, to pick a Julia moment. And I love that little clip that you shared, because um, for me, I think uh, Julia Child is such an incredible influence in so many ways, but I'll, I'll just pick two briefly. I think, you know, for me personally, her greatest contribution was just really being able to show that cooking is is a pleasure and not a chore and something you can really enjoy. And that was certainly something that I've tried to, yeah, it's funny, I've just tried to convey that in my work when either I'm running cooking classes or whether I'm kind of teaching, you know, sorry, you know, doing doing televised work. Um, but I think for me, it's probably the thing that I'm kind of smiling as I'm saying, it, actually, thinking of my own memories. But One of the ways that she's influenced me the most is to actually give me the confidence around um, a flexibility in the kitchen. So, you know, I've definitely had occasions, you know, who hasn't when you've done TV work where you kind of you know, a bit of food goes, well, I've definitely had moments where a bit of food has gone flying left, right and centre, or, you know, a dish hasn't quite turned out the way I've wanted to. And I've, you know, served it. And I think, you know, one of Julia's greatest gifts was to make one feel that that was okay. And and now whenever I'm kind of, yeah, talking to people or doing something on TV or or cooking, even, I try and convey that sense that mistakes are okay. And that food is something and cooking is something that we can enjoy and not get stressed by. And I think, that you know I'm a home cook, and I think you know the feedback I always get is that you know, as a result of the way that I communicate things, I make people feel quite safe in the kitchen and 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 you know not worried about stressing you know getting something perfect and I think Julie just embodied embodied that didn't it didn't she
1: yeah, no, I mean that's definitely one of my favorite lessons from julia is how how that it's that it's it's almost an ironic uh, A combination right because often instilling confidence kind of implies that you're going to do things right and well yeah whereas it's all but she added that like well confidence includes the ability to really mess up and to just deal with it and to realize that many things most things are fixable
2: exactly on that point and like i remember once i was doing a supper club and i was making this um Uh, Iranian like pomegranate and lentil soup and you know what it's like you've got a lot of stuff going on the soup slightly caught at the bottom and it burnt and we were all just stood there being like oh no what do we do and I was like it's fine we'll just call it a smoky you know lentil soup and plus (laughs) it's fine you know and just but it was that element I think Julia gave people the confidence to be able to just go hey it's just food and we can just rectify it or we can do it a different way and you know it's just about being able to enjoy the pleasure that we get from food
1: yeah. No, that's great. Well, thank you for your Julia moment and thank you for your delightful book, Ripe Figs, that I think both brings the joy and reminds us of um, you know, how important it is to understand migration and people who are migrants for a variety of reasons, um, with a lot more compassion and insight than than fear. And to do that through food and the wonderful meldings of food that it produces. So thanks for joining us, Yasmin.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: A pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. The book is Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece and Cyprus by Yasmin Khan with photographs by Matt Russell. It's out now from W.W. Norton and Company. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. If you want to keep up with Yasmin's travels, it's at Yasmin Khan Stories on Instagram and at Yasmin underscore Khan, Khan, on Twitter. For more from the Foundation, make sure you're following at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest updates on this year's events, both virtual and in person. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network. Today, it's Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorne. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter our handle is at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member